3: When they're extra territorial, what's its extraterrestrial being? Yeah, when yeah. when they when they come, they'll probably come in secret, won't they? Undoubtedly, <laughs> they'll land right, and, and only a few of us will know all, all about it. I expect. Oh yeah, well obviously, yeah. well see, they'll have a very advanced spacecraft. <laughs> On it, all the, uh, all un- the anti-gravitational mm. pull bits, mm. so it can come down very softly. Yeah. You know, like sort of. Pull. <laughs> and then all the door open. That's right. Oh my God! Uh, obviously, the whole world will benefit from their advanced technology. Because I mean, I mean, I want to meet some of the great minds from our planet. What all the brainy people like? I come in peace. Will you speak with me? Yep. No, I understand. Uh, you have come to our planet from another planet. No, we come from our own planet, not another one. And um, will they be, uh, you know, sort of well, I mean, uh, intelligent? I suppose. What well, is it? The thing you see, they'll have to be intelligent, won't of they? Course. I mean, to have come here in the first place. They have started playing with the chess set. Oh,
4: this is a development.
5: No, it isn't.
3: I'll tell you something. Yeah, it's going to change the fabric of society as we know it in many subtle and mysterious ways. <laughs> Your time must come, you smug. B-
4: the aliens are here.
0: We're all going to die. Drive on. Flush this down the.
3: Excuse me. Termites. Um, and of course they'll be greeted with and treated with kid gloves. Ah! Come on.
0: Use ah, your tentacles.
3: They'll be be like gods, won't they? They will come down, as you say, Derek, like gods. Looking forward to them coming. Then terrified. Be nice though when they come. Meet new people.
2: Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Cecil (laughs) Traichenberg. Thank you, Mike. How you doing, man? Also joining us in the booth is Mr. John Spira. Hi, Mike. We conclude Sci-Fi July with a look at Mike Hodge's Morons from Outer Space. Written by Griff Reese jones and Mel Smith, the film tells the tale of a quartet of less-than-bright intergalactic travelers who crash land on Earth. The film lampoons the ideas we have that... Earth may be visited by beings from outer space only to find that they're not as enlightened as we'd fancy them to be. We will be spoiling the film as much as we can, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the film. We will still be here. So Cecil, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think?
1: I actually saw it by accident the first time. It was in the 90s. I was in the video store and I was remembering a movie. I could not think of the name of it. All I remembered was that it was about idiots in outer space. And I found this movie called Morons from Outer Space. I'm like, I think this is the one. And I was actually looking for Space Invaders. Oh, so, wow. which I later watched and enjoyed, but it is a completely different film. So, but I rented Morons from Outer Space and I'm watching it. And I'm like, okay, this isn't the movie I was looking for, but this is actually really funny because I grew up with Monty Python and Benny Hill. So I really got that. Like, you know, that sense of humor. So I watched this and I'm like, wow, I'm really happy that I, I stumbled on this movie. I don't know if I would have seen it otherwise. And uh, it, was, it was really I mean, I was not expecting a space musical uh,
2: satire. It's, it's just it's a lot of things crammed into this one movie. And John, I know that this is probably in your book, but please tell the people at home How did you first come across this movie?
5: I saw it on day of release. I was 10 years old and my parents took me to see it in the cinema. I can only imagine that it was in the cinema for one week. I really can't imagine it lasted that long because in this country, it does not have a high profile. It's not a big film here. It's not a film which people have heard of at all. It's not, it doesn't crop up in lists. It doesn't crop up on TV. It, it's not even available on DVD in this country, let alone Blu ray. So this is not a film which is known here. And I can't believe it would have survived long in the cinema. But my parents were fans of, um, of Griffin Mel. And knowing that I was a fan of Star Wars and Close Encounters and everything sci fi, I think they knew it was a safe bet. And I adored it. It immediately got a special place in my heart that night. You know, was, you know, I was talking to a friend about this one time, but you know, um, when you're at uh, a certain age, when you see your parents laugh at something, like really kind of laughing at something, which maybe is a little bit above what you understand, it gives it a greater validation than perhaps it deserves. So I think Morris has, it's had a special place in my heart since then, and it's not going anywhere.
2: I actually remember Siskel and Ebert talking about this film, and I don't remember much about the review, even if they liked it or not, I do just remember Mel sneezing inside of the helmet. And that was enough for me at, God, I must've been 12 years old. Uh No, sorry, 14 years old when they reviewed it. And so at 14 years old, that was just freaking hilarious. And I was already a huge sci-fi nerd and was just like, yes, I have to see this. And I was also a little bit of an Anglophile, not As much as I would be in years after that, I would eventually be able to recognize Smith & Jones from, you know, when the Bambi appearance on the young ones, uh, those kind of things. And then I liked those guys and I would see them show up in things. I remember really wanting to see Alas, Smith and Jones, but not being able to find any way of seeing that over here in the States. I saw maybe a couple episodes of Not the Nine O'clock News, but. It was great when Smith started his whole, you know, directing career and he would show up in more things after that. But Jones, he just kind of disappeared for a while and I always liked him quite a bit. To kind of contextualize who Smith and Jones were at that time, there is a continuum
5: in British comedy, still to a degree it exists, which is the oncoming generations of people who the BBC have backed kind of, you know, consistently. And really, it started with Monty Python. And not the nine o'clock news was kind of third generation. the second generation was the goodies i don 't know if that really made it to the to the states I don't know it was bigger australia and then, in the kind of early eighties it was not the nine o 'clock news, which was a sketch show which Smith and Jones were just a part of, which also featured Rowan Atkinson who's you know gone on to kind of great things and Pamela Stevenson, who actually left comedy, not the nine o'clock news was huge but only within Britain and only for the time it was on. I don't know quite how to explain it other than to say it's not very well remembered here. It's not like all the others. When people talk about it, they do talk about it as having been brilliant, but it's not in heavy rotation at all. It's not, it's not repeated or anything when they broke up because Rowan Atkinson was clearly going to go on and be a big star. Mel and Griff really just kind of were forced together. You know, Pamela, Pamela Stevenson was leaving Rowan Atkinson was going to be a big star they'd already made millions by then just because they had, um, they had a couple of hit singles and a, a hit album and a hit book which had made them all millionaires you know when they were in their twenties and Mel and Griff just kind of naturally kind of formed the twosome because they used to do certain sketches together and More from Outer Space was just offered to them because they were so hot at that point they were allowed to make a film it was just kind of like well you know what are you going to do next we'll do a film, I guess. So that's where they were coming from. Like the, the commissioning of more on space would have had a theory behind it that, well, Monty Python finished on TV and moved into cinema. So let's give Mel and Griff a chance and see what they do.
2: It's kind of sad that Mel Smith is probably best known here in the States just for his tiny role in the princess bride as the albino.
0: Where am I? The bit of despair. Don't even think. <laughs>
3: don't even think about trying to escape. The chains are far too thick, and don't dream of being rescued either. The only way in is secret. Only the Prince, of the Count, and I know how to get in and out. Then I'm here till I die.
2: Till I kill you. And that's about it. And then Pamela Stevenson. I remember when she was on one of the worst seasons of Saturday Night Live. I mean, at least when I was watching Saturday Night Live, it was one of those really awful times. That was the 84-85 season. I remember her in bloodbath at House of Death. But, yes, she's not really a known quantity. And then, really, Jones, I don't know if people would have something that they would associate with him. It's really just been... Rowan Atkinson, who's now, you know, he's still going strong. He just had that whole man versus bee thing drop. And it's just like, wow, of all the people I didn't expect really for him to be the shining star. I mean, he's a fantastic performer. I love Black Adder, but it's just like, wow, this guy has really parlayed this Bean type character into so much. You know, my point of view is it's just very lazy
5: commissioning. The thing that Bean has done is it's filled a gap which existed at the time and still exists, which is that uh, if you want to make a lot of money in comedy, a lot of people don't realize this, but you do it, you do silent comedy because then internationally it sells all over the world because they don't have to dub it. And it doesn't depend on the kind of cultural assets. That's why Mr. Bean was so huge is because they could sell it all around the world because it was, you know, it was the kind of silent comedy. And, you know, he's made a good career out of doing that. It's debatable, I love Ron Atkinson for Black Adder and I love him for what he's capable of doing. And I kind of hate him for thirty years of, you know, kind of ripping off Harper Marx and I find that very upsetting. The kind of blatant ripping off of kind of Monsieur Hulot's holiday and, and, and that kind of thing and Buster keep. What he does is regurgitate things that people who care about cinema are very, very familiar with. It upsets me. I find that really lazy. He's done very well out of it. <laughs>
1: One of the reasons why you know it is so successful, um because it is a silent thing, but also because Ron Atkinson, uh, as the Bean character, is so good at his expressions. Like, I mean, even though, yes, he is ripping off the Marx Brothers and whatnot, he's doing it in a way that does elevate it. it's It's so much more funny because of the way that he's able to express the character, of how he's able to do things. With Without saying a word, you know, he'll just occasionally he'll say like one thing and it's usually bean, you know, but he has that just look on his face and it makes it funny. And so while I kind of understand you're, you're disliking it and, uh, you know, kind of being aggravated that, uh, you know, he has more or less borrowed and taken elsewhere. For me, I've always had a soft spot for it. I always find it funny. He's essentially the last clown
5: standing. You know, we, we don't have that kind of medium of clowning in cinema or really TV anymore. That, that very physical, everything expressed silently. I suppose in a way he's kind of a treasure because he's, he's the last guy holding up the entire, <laughs> the entire oeuvre of, of that. So there probably should be a bit more respect for him.
2: Yeah. He's keeping it alive. You know, <laughs> he really is. No, he really is. That is true. And this is an unusual film for Mike Hodges, who we've talked about a lot on this show. We did an episode about Git Carter, about Flash Gordon, and now Morons from Outer Space. And, I mean, I've talked about Croupier many times. I'd love to do an episode just solely on that. And, you know, he's got sci-fi chops. He's got The Terminal Man. He's got Flash Gordon. He doesn't necessarily have the comedy chops, but I think that he pulls it off. And to read your book, John, as far as what was originally in the script versus what he brought to the table. I mean, there's some really funny lines in there. That whole thing of when the aliens crash on earth and they're smashing through all those cars. And we have the little line about they must be Belgian. I, that's one of my favorite lines in the film. <laughs>
5: totally. Totally. I think, I mean, you've interviewed Mike before, haven't you? Yeah, back for Get Carter. I think when you meet Mike, you realise that he has a very, very dark, very dry sense of humor. And that's actually all the way through Carter. Carter is a dark, dark film. But for me, there are laugh-out loud moments in it. So with morons, yeah, it it seems implausible that, that the director of kind of Get Carter would do that. But then does it seem so implausible that the director of Flash Gordon would kind of do that, you know? Mike is, is a really fascinating guy to talk to in general, but, but he is a journeyman filmmaker. And when you talk to him about his career, like as an overall, you could almost look at it based on the films he didn't get to make rather than the films that he did get to make. Cause I mean, I think that's true for a lot of filmmakers. They can be frustrated by their actual filmography because some of the projects they cared the most about were the projects which never finally made it to the screen. And Mike has just, he has very broad tastes. You know, he's, he's not someone who you could just put in a box. And although he's famous for kind of Get Carter and the Croupier and I'll Sleep When I'm Dead and those kind of revenge films, I think the latter of those two were easier to commission on the back of Get Carter. And obviously he put his all into them, but there are some really wacky films that he tried to get made that 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 didn't make it. So I think morons when he talks about what attracted him to the project, which is this notion of us looking ridiculously to the stars for higher intelligence, and then what would happen if they arrived and they were just like the worst of humanity, which is almost the most likely response because that's how we've ended up. You know, we're not going to get mystical star beings. We're going to get people in a caravan who have just invented the jump to light speed quicker than we have. And it's, and it'll be operated by people who don't even understand it, you know? So
2: that's what attracted him to, to the project. And so it makes a lot of sense when you look at it that way. We start with this amazing shot of what looks like, almost like the Nostromo at the beginning of alien. And then And with the laugh line, basically, or laugh moment of the visual gag of it's pulling a caravan on this huge chain. And there's Jimmy Nail coming out of this caravan and getting his air hose stuck in the door and then having to walk across this chain and getting all this garbage dumped on him and getting tripped up by gravity when he goes inside of the main ship. I mean, it's just. I love it. I love how this movie opens, and I love that it is constant jokes. Not all of them land, sure, but there are constant jokes, and they try everything with this movie, all kinds of humor, At one point it turns into a musical and it's like, okay, you know, why not? Why not do that with this? Because it's just, it's wild. And I love that you really never know which direction it's going in. It could have been a really easy, like, oh, we're just going to parody Star Wars or close encounters or some other sort of known quantity. But instead it's just, it's a lot of things thrown into a blender and we're just going to see what sticks to the wall once we pour out this gloop.
1: Yeah, it never goes where you would expect it to. You think with a m- title like Morons from Outer Space, you're thinking it's going to be, you know, fart humor or something. And really, it's like there's a lot of dumb jokes, but there's a lot of very smart jokes. And it's not really going in any direction that you would expect. You think, like like we were just saying, you know, it it's going one way, and then it's like, okay, now it's a musical. And now it's this, and now... You know, it's satire, and and it's kind of scathing at certain points. They did a, a really good job of completely—I hate using the term—but subverting your expectations. You know, you you keep thinking it's going to be this, and it ends up going you know that way. And the other thing that really struck me is the visuals in it—the uh, the models for the spaceships and the big sight gags like the ship crash landing on earth and driving down the road with all the cars and all that is done very well. Like for, you know, for essentially a comedy, it's got larger sci-fi and action level, like quality of effects. Like they really went all out with some of these and it's
2: very impressive. Even when they have, what you could consider simple things like walking across that chain in no gravity or Mel Smith when he's playing a space ball and that's all shot in, I guess just slow motion, but it looks really good. It looks like it's a no gravity type of situation. And I'm sure they're not going up in the vomit comet and shooting five seconds at a time kind of thing. Like Apollo 13, this is probably done on a shoestring budget, but to your point, it looks really good. You've got to remember that at this time,
5: you had the whole Star Wars trilogy, you had the alien films, you had, you know, all of these sci-fi films were being filmed in England at these studios, and these technicians were working on whatever was coming up at the time. So, you know, although Morons was on, was, I mean, it wasn't actually a low budget, it was kind of a medium budget, really. But that kind of thing, you had the people around who could crack that out in an afternoon. You know, I mean, like when you compare it to like Star Wars Navy and it doesn't look quite as good, but it's clearly, you clearly do have the level of technicians working on it who can just pull that stuff off. So, yeah, I mean, it was amazing. It was, it was, it was just at that time, those were the kind of films that were being made in this country. So it was, it was possible. And Mike obviously was just kind of probably four or five years off Flash Gordon. So he had directed a big film with a big budget. I know Griff told me that when they first appeared on set, it was not what they were expecting at all. They were expecting it to be a much smaller looking thing, but just Mike as a filmmaker had just gone in and brought it up to the standards that he was working at. So they were surprised at the kind of production values themselves. And obviously also, you know, the fact that it's, it was not filmed in America. They had to recreate a lot of small town America kind of on, on the back
2: lots of British studios and stuff. So, It's, yeah, no, the production values on it, I think, are fantastic. Three of the aliens crash land on Earth at one point, and then the fourth alien, Bernard, who's played by Mel Smith, he crash lands in in the United States. So we've got the separation of these characters. So it's really kind of odd, because, you know, he's all over, Mel Smith is all over the poster and all this kind of stuff, and he and Griff, they don't meet until the end scene. That this is a Smith and Jones film, but they are separated, and also Bernard is separated from the rest of the group the whole time, so it's like you've almost got this separate film going on at the same time as you've got the other one about the three aliens and their rise to fame, and then you've got poor Bernard over in the States, and he it gets locked in a loony bin. He's trying to commune with garbage cans. There's just all this <laughs> stuff going on where this guy's in a, he's literally in a separate film, you know? And it's just like, all right, eventually these two are going to cross, but it takes a long damn time for those two paths to finally cross. Until the very end. Yeah. When I interviewed Griff about this, you've got to bear in mind that at the time
5: that I was writing the book, both Griff and Mike hated this film and neither of them had watched it since they'd finished it. And it was quite weird interviewing them. They were both very touchy about it. Things have, things have changed significantly. Thank God. I had three big questions for Griff. And, and in, this is all in the book, you know, the book ends with a big interview with Griff. And the three big questions were, why were you and Mel not in the film together, considering you're a comedy double act, because they meet in the last shot of the film. When I was a kid, I was like, Oh, is that supposed to be like, now they're Smith and Jones? the origin story. Like, is that the joke? Is the joke that is the origin of Smith & Jones? And my other question was, why weren't you on the poster? It's a Smith & Jones film. Why is only Mel on the poster? And Griff's response was, I have no answer for any of that. (laughs) (laughs) And he just said, we'd never written a screenplay before. There's no reason. He's like, you're looking for answers. There are no answers. We'd never done this before. And, And the truth is, we just didn't fucking think about it. And that's that's it. That's all there is. So one of the joys of Morris from Space, if you love it and if you enjoy it, is actually you're making a lot of mental connections yourself, which really they haven't done at all.
2: (laughs) Yeah, in all fairness, it should be Jimmy Nail's photo on that poster, because he's really the star of the show. He
5: really is the star of the show. I mean... And also the fact that it says morons, you think they'd put more than one of them on the poster, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's really weird, but it's a great poster. It's a great image. Although, to be honest, I still don't understand how they could have used that image in the states and around the world because Mel Smith wasn't famous anywhere else. Like the the reason that poster works is because in the UK, seeing Mel Smith in a space helmet is very funny. So you'd say, "Oh, I want to go see that." That's ridiculous. The idea of mel smith in a in in a sci-fi film but they use that all around the world so it's just it's so strange
2: there's that weird alternate poster where it's the person wearing like swim fins and a rubber duck around themselves and it says they came they saw they did a little shopping it's like why why this that looks even worse it's so terrible i would
5: never have seen it with that poster i would never have seen it
1: i don't even know what movie they're trying to sell with that like that's that's not this movie at all like that is that is a terrible i mean it's it is uh arguably kind of well done as far from an artistic standpoint if it was the fart comedy movie but it's totally not that yeah they're with with that cover they're completely uh selling the film it's ridiculous yeah, it's more like
2: that Rocket Man movie. I can't remember Harlan. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. I
1: think that was Rocket Man. Yeah, with yeah, absolutely. That if if that was the cover for Rocket Man, that would make perfect because it's not that far off from Rocket Man. It's him in a spacesuit, and he's filled with. Uh, he, I I believe he like farted in his suit, so it made the suit big. <laughs> it's so so that was the movie that yeah they they
2: they were a a, a couple of decades ahead of themselves with the poster. Well, and then you see images from the film and it almost is always, uh, Desmond. Sandra and Julian all in their punk rock outfits and that doesn't happen again until the very end of the film it's like they've already gone through like becoming chat show celebrities and then they start selling things you know you've got the lube beer that uh, Des is selling and then eventually they move it's like I mean it's basically like that kind of weird ascension to stardom that you do here where it's like oh well first you're this type of person then you're like you know and then you move into I don't know you're you're a singer then you become a you're a model and then you become a singer then you become an actor and then you become whatever you direct and you just kind of like move up that chain if you're certain people and that for them it's like we don't know what the hell we're doing we're trying everything that we possibly can we want to make money i love how base that they are and they're just like as soon as they start to hear about money it's like oh yeah let's sign us up for that griff we want this so much in a way it also kind of almost predicted
5: that that version of stardom because I, I kind of feel like in the 80s, you didn't have that many people who who were just famous, not for any particular reason, other than they've had a lot of exposure. And that's kind of what they do there. And it's so, when you look at it on paper, it is mad. I mean, it's moronic, the idea that they suddenly end up as like punk rockers singing, doing a gig, you know, doing like a stadium gig. It's just, it's so weird. Like, it doesn't make any sense at all. But then that's the joy of Morris About Space, is is that it's willfully kind of, you know, stupid. It it will always take the stupid choice. And you kind of have to respect that
2: in the end. The only real thread is that you get... Sandra singing when she's being interviewed. And then you see her later on TV singing the same song. And I love that she doesn't know the words of the song. So she just kind of works that into, like, because basically she's stealing somebody else's song. It's like that guy from yesterday, where he's just like, oh, I'm just going to take these songs from the Beatles and call them my own, and I'll become famous from this. And here she is taking a song from, what is it, Blob, her Whoa. home planet, and <laughs> 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 taking that and being like, oh yeah, this is mine. Here, I'll be Come famous off of this? that's right she claims to have been a rock star on blob i forgot about that yeah where the truth is that
5: she i think in one interview she says they say so you have been to university she says yes and they say what did you study and she says shoes and coloring in
2: right, <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> one of the reasons why the, the movie really works is because you have the the comedic timing and, and beauty of griffin mel and they didn't entirely – I don't want to say they didn't know what they were doing, but following up on John's, like, interview with with Griff, like, where, you know, they got the opportunity to write a screenplay to make a movie, and they they were like, okay, yeah, let's just see what works. And then you have it tempered by, uh, like, the direction of Mike Hodges, who, like, he actually – you know, he knows what he's doing, so he was able to kind of take what they did And have it make sense and then punch it up a little bit with a little more of his dry humor. And I think the whole thing, it really was kind of just this experiment that because of the talent of everyone involved, it ended up working. Whereas if you had had a different director or maybe they would have uh, wrote it and then had somebody else finish the screenplay, it maybe just wouldn't have all gelled and it wouldn't have come together quite as great as it did. What you're saying
5: is exactly right, but your final point I have to disagree with, which is as much as I love this film, and this is in my top five films of all time, and I've spent a year of my life writing a book about this. Okay, I love this film. It's not a good film. <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't work. It's a mess of a film, and most viewers who watch it will kind of watch it. I mean, and I've tried this because as part of the book, I sat down two film critics and said, right, you know, I I want you to watch this and then I want to have a talk about it. And the agreement among my kind of social group, which I think is very similar to you guys, you talk about successful films as being the sum of their parts. And this film is the opposite of that. This is a film which doesn't work. This is a film which is a mess and which most people would not enjoy, but the parts are excellent. The sum is bad. The parts are excellent. So you have incredible performances, wonderful production design, a really unique sense of humor, and one of the world's great directors. But that doesn't mean the finished product holds together. What it means is you have an hour and a half of great ideas. And that's what's so wonderful about it. You know, the fact that it kind of doesn't work is what's so great about it. So, so I kind of disagree of the kind of narrative as kind of saying it's a script, which maybe doesn't work from very talented writers. Then a great director comes in and makes it work. I don't think it actually works, but I think that everyone in it, everyone associated with it is so fucking great and so unique in their aspect that what you get is just something really interesting. And always entertaining. And it will always wrong foot you. And as long as you're open to that as an experience, because I've watched it with people who will completely disregard it and just go, it doesn't make sense. It's stupid. It's crap. But if you're like us
1: and you're open to things which are interesting, it's a very rewarding experience. I can agree with that. I may have been overselling it a little bit. But uh, the way that I usually work is regardless of... Uh, If the movie is supposed to be a comedy, it's supposed to be sci-fi or whatever. If at the end of the movie, if I enjoyed it and I want to see it again, and if it really had something that has me thinking about it, like days later and laughing at a joke or thinking about an action scene or something, I usually will consider that movie a success. Now, I won't. I don't necessarily will recommend something like there are a lot of movies that I adore that uh, I've tried to recommend, like Surf Nazis Must Die. I love that movie, but I recommend it. People are like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen with something like this. I would recommend it to people that I know, uh, you know, in my circle, uh, my friends who like a lot of British comedy, a lot of that kind of stuff where they will get the jokes, they will get the bits, they will get some of the references. And at the end, they may not necessarily enjoy the movie, but I think they wouldn't hate it. They would kind of come from the perspective where you were, whereas, oh, there were a lot of great moments in the film, but maybe the whole film wasn't that good because of the fact that it's so much all going on all at once and it all is packed into this one movie for me i really just think it works it works in spite of itself i i feel really weird saying it's not
5: a great film because it's one of my favorite films so it absolutely works for me but yeah i think we're
2: i think we're basically on the same page yeah i think yeah 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 absolutely yeah, I tell people, watch Freejack. It's a horrible movie, but I love it. It's you know? so much fun. Um, uh, yeah, right? Yes. It's a fun so movie. It, fun. Can you defend it? No. But can you say, I enjoy this movie? Yes, you definitely can. You can tell that Mick is having an absolute blast making it. Every time he gets to say Furlong's name, he's just like, yeah, this is
1: great. Uh, <laughs> <for Sendak> with <laughs>
2: <laughs>
5: I just remember a big place where i going, don't do it, don't do
2: it. <laughs> oh, it was great. <laughs> this movie also gives James B. Seeking a lot of uh, room to play in this, and I love him, or sorry, Sicking is actually how you say his name. Um, and, man, oh, man, I love him. I talked with him, oh, gosh, about Outland years ago, which is funny because there's an Outland connection in here. There is. <laughs> and, you know, this was around the time that he was in Hill Street Blues, I believe. So he's just, you know, in right after um, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. So he's really at the top of his game at this point and gets to show up. couple weeks ago we talked about whoops apocalypse which joanne pierce was in as well and we talked about the way that the americans weren't necessarily lampooned enough in that film this one again i think you could go farther with just how dumb americans are but having especially having sicking show up as this colonel Larrabee, and the music playing and him landing in this helicopter you know the british are all like cautious about coming up to this ship and he just lands right next to it. Just like, all right, let's go. And he's just so like war happy and wants to kill everything. And I'm just like, yeah, this is a great parody of the Americans. I love it. And he just, I mean, his Howard character from uh, hill street blues is all about guns and killing people. And I'm just like, yeah, good you know you're just channeling that howard and just having a great time and i i didn't remember that amazing reaction shot when he's dead and they cut to him and he's
0: <laughs> so good
2: well you know what's
5: great about his casting as well is that they don't just lampoon the americans they put him up against dinsdale landon i think his name is who's who's you know the stereotype of the british guys you know who's just very kind of a fate and very kind of like a colonial in his approach and i love that i love that they just show the two sides of them and when they have conversations together nothing makes sense they're just
2: spewing non-sequiturs each other it's just amazing didn't say landon he he so reminds me of the guy who shows up at the end of clockwork orange who's just like oh alex you're so much better now and there's no reason to tell the media about all these things that happened to you like he just has that same vibe going on it's
5: that horrible kind of authority kind of landed gentry kind of bureaucracy kind of thing it's it's interesting because we don't see those characters anymore those characters were very from the kind of well from 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 the year dot until about the kind of 1980s that really kind of represented authority in this country you know government was like that until until margaret thatcher kind of shook everything up and now you know now government is much more about kind of um personalities but back then it was very bland you know if you if you were in the high power in, in the uk you were almost kind of faceless you were these kind of dull men in suits who were just too posh to even you know they looked down on everyone and and, and there was no emotion to it so he he's a brilliant
1: kind of satire of that that class going back to to james sicking because i had seen this in the 90s i wasn't like entirely familiar with him back then i'm watching the movie and for me it was like I, you know, I didn't watch Hill Street Blues until, you know, probably the later 90s. And but for, I'm watching it. I'm like, hey, it's the dad from Doogie Hauser. <laughs>
2: and, and he's
1: playing he's playing a hard ass. What is this? <laughs>
2: he's so gung ho about all of this. We were talking a little bit about the special effects, and I love the special effects of the creature that picks up Bernard, like kind of a triple A service. He looks amazing. And he's so scary looking, but I, I know it's just very effective. And if anything, he's probably just a puppet, but really good looking puppet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very good looking puppet. Like, I mean, kind of like looked like a like a living skeleton, you know, and then he's, are you the male or the female? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's such a great puppet for just really a one off gag. Well, you know, it's also a twofer because they, when that old guy picks him
5: up
2: when he lands on Earth and he kind of looks like the puppet. And he's like, by the way, I'm a man. This movie is just filled with so many gags, like those little kids that are like throwing stones in uh, the pond and then the swans turn around and the guys stand up and they're wearing swan hats. It's just like, that didn't need to be here, but it is so damn funny
5: which goes piss off <laughs> you know why why I often think about it is is and i wouldn't change a frame of this film i love this film but if you can imagine if instead of mike they had got a director actually more like mel went on to be because mel went on to direct the beam films but if you'd got a director who's more in tune with their sense of humor I think you would have ended up with something more like the airplane films where it's constant gags and everything lands because you really have created a stupid world. You've created a kind of space where this works. I think it's so much meatier for being in the kind of real satirical, darker world that Mike creates. But there is a version in the multiverse of and Matters Space which is a lot stupider where it's just constant gags and, and more gags, you know? Yeah. I think, it, I think it could have become that.
1: It would have been a more successful film if it was that, but it wouldn't be quite as unique as it is.
5: It wouldn't have the intelligence. What it's got is behind all the stupidity. It has a very convincing thesis and a deep intelligence and cynicism to it. I mean, that's what Mike would tell you. It's, it's a cynical film. And the way he directed it, he told me, was because at that point, as a filmmaker, he just hated Steven Spielberg. What he's doing visually is he's mocking Steven Spielberg at every step. And when you know that, you really see it. He's doing those those dramatic push-ins and tilt-ups to people's faces and stuff. And for him, when he watched Spielberg films, he was so cynical about them, and he was so disgusted by like the sense of wonder and magic. That's what he was concentrating on he didn't look at the script in that sense for the gags and the dialogue. His whole point was to, was to really lampoon, especially kind of close encounters. And he did it beautifully.
1: Yeah. I was going to say with the ending, with the, the, basically the close encounter ship showing up and it's pretty much just the repo man yeah <laughs> right yeah it's just great
2: <laughs> or professor trousseau who shows up like claude lacombe the francois truffaut character and he's just like doesn't speak any english whatsoever and he's like oh he's going to communicate to them with music and then that box opens up and it's that huge organ he starts playing scott joplin's the entertainer <laughs>
5: <laughs> that's for, for me one of the greatest gags in the film it was only when i was a bit older that i understood what it was is that they talk up Trousseau as being this expert of communication. He's the guy who's going to break through, and then he doesn't speak English. And it's like, that's hilarious. That's brilliant.
2: (laughs) And when the aliens finally arrive, you know, after they hear all the noise, you know, the last time it lasted 20 seconds. I love that cut to Des and Sandra having sex, and uh, she's just eating an apple. (laughs) 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 But, But when the door falls off, and he's just like, you take that door off. My, my friend Anton Bittel, he's one of the kind
5: of sight and sound ju- film, film critics. He said, like, when I made him watch the film for the book, he said that for all the, for all of the film's failings, he's a collector of dismal sex scenes.
0: <laughs> and he says, in
5: cinema history, that is one of the most dismal sex scenes. She's literally lying, eating an apple while Des is just. Doing his stuff on her. It's just
1: (laughs) and and doesn't she say doesn't she say like, well get on with it or or something like that?
2: (laughs) When I was a kid, it didn't really dawn on me too much until later that, you know, not only do you have the whole parody of Close Encounters, but then the whole parody of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, because they eventually locked Bernard in a psych ward. And I just love the whole thing of like, oh, I promised to uh, teach the Eskimo chief how to play ping pong. And then you get to see all of these guys that are there. And I'm just like... Oh, yeah, this is 100% one for the, with the cuckoo's nest. And I love that stupid gag of the Eskimo chief pulling his fake arm off. <laughs> and it's such an obvious fake arm that there's no way the nurse would have given him an injection and thought that it was real. But I just love that so much. And also,
5: where would he have gotten the fake arm? It's not even, not even thought through in any way. It's just, it's just a stupid joke. For me, like the great moment in that sequence is when Bernard fu- breaks them all out. And there's this very dramatic moment. He goes, friends, thank you, farewell. And he runs off. And then they all just stand outside and just make loads of noise. <laughs> it's just like, it's so stupid. But it's like, it, if that's not true, that's terrible. That's an awful representation of mental illness. That you know, it's something you really couldn't do anymore. But I love the idea that he has broken out a bunch of people who can't function in the real world. So the second they're outside, all they do is just make noise until they're found again. So stupid.
1: I love that he goes to the police station and he's like, I'm here. I'm the alien. And they're like, get in line. And there's just all the all the people in costumes and everything. He's like, no, really, I am the alien.
2: And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're all like, no, I'm the alien. Yeah. <laughs> so. The whole bit with him eating the guy's spaghetti, for whatever reason, that just gets me every single time. Him completely unaware as Bernard's just there just stuffing his face i think mel smith does a great job speaking of physical comedy just so much of his role is reactions and just him there stuffing his face with that spaghetti and not the guy not realizing until he takes the bread and starts soaking up
1: the sauce
2: <laughs> mel smith is is one of the great comic performers
5: it's a, he's a very strange character he died a few years ago Kind of tragically, you know, young and he had an addiction to painkillers and, and his health had, had got very bad. He's such an interesting character. Like when you talk to Griff about him, their relationship was very much like Laurel and Hardy in that, you know, Oliver Hardy was off on the golf course and Stan Laurel spent months getting the scripts and getting everything perfect. And then Hardy would just work on set and get it in the first take and then go, Oh, I forgot it. I'll go back to the golf course. And that was very much Griffin Mel's relationship as well, which Griff, you know, in in the interview I did with him, he he says he found very frustrating, you know, very hard to deal with, that Mel essentially was someone who didn't really do a service to his enormous talents. You know, he did a lot of things in his life. He did theatre, he did comedy, he he, you know, he he acted seriously in some really incredible roles. Actually, I mean, I when I was Working on my recent TV series, I found him in a film called Avalon, which I didn't even expect him to pop up in where he played a racist garage, like mechanic owner as an employer. And, and he, he's this hugely talented figure who to some degree never really delivered on his talent. It was so easy for him. And you stick him in something in like morons and like he lights up the screen whenever he's on it. You can't not look at him. He has the most bizarre and expressive face. It's just, I, I think he's incredible. I think, talk about kind of Rowan Atkinson, but Rowan Atkinson, when he does his facial things, he's mugging, you know, he's doing extreme things with his face. Mel didn't have to do extreme things. Mel's face was so expressive that, you know, the, the, the smallest, the scene where he, where he sneezes in his helmet is a great gag, but it starts with him being depressed, slowly realizing he needs to sneeze, and then sneezing. And the progression of expressions in that sequence, if you watch it on pause, it's incredible. Like, you know, he's what he's doing is when I did the book, I did a special edition on Kickstarter, and one of the extra things you got was I commissioned an artist to do to capture all of Mel's expressions. So you got a book which was just a picture drawings of Mel's face in every expression he kind of he, he did in the book in, in the film. And because I'm
2: that obsessed with him, he's, he's such an expressive performer. His face by itself, like his IMDb picture, where he's just kind of a little bit of a smirk. The guy just looks funny. I just love it.
1: Yeah, you see that and you know exactly the kind of guy he is. You're like, oh, this guy. And then you immediately recognize him. Oh, he's been a character actor in all these great comedies. And yeah, he's, he's just a, a naturally funny guy. He was in a film called Slayground,
5: which I do not remember well, but I remember him being very kind of dark in that. He was, he, he crops up in Restless Natives as well. He's very good at, at being kind of really shady characters. Like I say, I just wish he'd done more. You know, I, I look at his life and his career and you go, it's very hard to kind of put a, a mark on it where you say, aha, this is the high point. This is, this was his moment. I mean, in a way, I think Allegiance probably was like that. He got a lot of kudos for that. I just wish he'd done more. I wish he'd left a kind of a bigger body of work, but I get the feeling that he lived the life he wanted to and had an awful lot of fun because he was obscenely wealthy. Mel and Griff had their own production company in the early eighties and sold it for like tens of millions. They are, they, you know, they, they, they made out like bandits. Like I say, there were millionaires already coming out of not known news. But when they sold Talkback and they made all that money, it was, yeah, it was absolutely kind of crazy and, you know, fair play to them. And I'm sure that's why, I mean, I think Griff has a huge work ethic. Griff may not be kind of famous anymore for performing, but he crops up on TV a lot. He's a presenter and he does a lot of interesting stuff. He's a bit of a national treasure over here. But I think Mel just, I think, I think at a certain point just started to enjoy what he had in life, you know, and, and he was a fan of the cigar.
1: Mel was in a movie that is not very well known. I'm sure you guys probably both know it, but it is one of my all-time absolute favorite comedies, Brain Donors, which <laughs> if you want to talk about a movie that rips off the the Marx Brothers, okay, it rips off the Marx Brothers, but it is unbelievably funny. You know, I'm in a bad mood. I need to be cheered up. I will watch Brain Donors. It is just hysterically funny. And yeah, and Mel is just great in it. John Terturo in, you know, a comedic turn. Bob Nelson, who is the stand-up. Just the
2: three of them together. It is genuinely funny. I remember that came out right around the same time as things like Nuns on the Run and The Pope Must Die, which we called The Pope Must Die over here. And it was this weird influx of British com- comedy like that. Oh, um, what was that one with Lenny Henry, too, where he? True had identity. Undercover. Thank you. Had to go undercover as a white guy. Yeah. And it was just all of these great British comedians all of a sudden were like there at the movie theater where I was working at. And I was going through and seeing posters with these very familiar faces by that time. And I was just like, this is fantastic. But yeah, the, the combination of Totoro and Bob Nelson and Mel Smith, which is like, what is this? What can this movie be? (laughs) I haven't seen this since it came out on VHS. I am now going to track it down and watch it again. Well, it's kind of amazing. Like Pat Proft was one of the writers and Dennis Dugan was, uh, the director of it. So who, um, well, I mostly know from his, uh, turns and things like, um, Richie Brockman, Private Eye, those kind of things. He had an appearance in, uh, Columbo as well. But yeah, he was a director as well. I think he even did some, um, he, I can't remember if he did any of the Adam Sandler films or if he just shows up in them. I think, I think he, he might have
1: directed have. Big Daddy and he directed like Benchwarmers Warmers and, uh, yeah. Uh, Beverly Hills Ninja, Happy Gilmore, you know. So, yeah, he did direct some of the some of the big ones kind of going back to how
2: base the aliens are is when Bernard finally travels to the UK and there's that reunification they want nothing to do with him (laughs) because (laughs) they thought he was a jerk when they were in outer space and they think he's even more of a jerk now because he wants to cut in on their profits and him meeting them and them dressed basically like aliens like punk rockers and now they've got their song and I love that fucking song man so so good. I've got the, the 45 right here. Hey! So. <laughs> nice. I don't have the 12-inch remix, though, unfortunately. You don't want the 12-inch so. remixes too much. <laughs> too much. 45 is just the right length, huh? They're
5: morons, but they hate him. Like they're, they're, They have enough wherewithal
2: to completely hate this guy, who's just actually quite a nice guy. I mean, he's stupid, yes, but he doesn't seem... Vicious, like they seem very venal a lot of times, and just always lying and always trying to make up new stories. And just the way that Sandra fucks up and mentions Bernard, it's like, oops, (laughs) I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Let me tell you, there is, and it
5: is terrible, but there is a novelization of this movie. Well, I spoke to Griff about it. Griff has never read this book, and basically, it was written by one of his school friends. So I think it was just like, at that time they were doing novelizations and they said, oh, you can do the novelization. So Griff doesn't even seem to know what was in this book at all. This guy just completely filled it. like Because you know those novelizations, some of them were based on early drafts and some of them were just kind of bored writers who were just like, this film is shit, so I'm going to fill in the details myself. And he fills in the details. The backstory is that the reason that they were going on holiday at all is because jimmy nails character des was drinking too much lube so they had to get him off the planet and away from lube so this was like a rehab trip for jimmy nails character but none of them could drive so they end up getting bernard who is des's brother's friend to drive he was the only person they knew who was available who could drive so that's the reason those four were in in the, the caravan together
2: All right, let's go ahead and we're going to take a break, and we will be back with an interview with Graham himself, Griff Reef Jones, right after these brief messages.
1: My name is T2756 Would you like to have sex with me now for money? Worst Movies Ever Played is back With three new VHS movies for your ears sex you're alive again How I've missed you Anything can happen in this actual play RPG podcast And we mean anything You didn't think you could go to Texas Instruments without murdering someone, did you? <laughs>
2: Subscribe to Worst Movies Ever Played Wherever you get your podcasts do you mind telling me how you got involved in show business and specifically comedy?
4: I went to Cambridge. Now, there was a club in Cambridge, which is a bit like that I think it's the Hasty Pudding or the, the Harvard Lampoon, whatever, you know, and that was there in the university. When I arrived, the first day I arrived, I'd been a pretty unsuccessful actor at school. I'd been in things, but never been given big parts and just but I loved acting. When I arrived, there was a message from somebody who'd been at my school and had gone on to university ahead of me, called Douglas Adams. And Douglas Adams wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But he hadn't written Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at that stage. But he was a year above me at school. I'd known him through being in Julius Caesar and various Shakespeare plays these So he sent me a note and said, Do you want, do you want a part? in a play being directed by a a man who became a completely notable historian and uh, Sue Lim, who is a a, a playwright now. And so uh, the rivals playing fag. And I said, wow, this is fantastic. I mean, literally, I hadn't even checked into my room, my dorm. I was just like completely just arriving at university. Suddenly somebody says, do you want to be in a play? And it was in the university theatre, and which I didn't realise at the time. It's quite a prestigious sort of thing. And most people didn't do that until they'd been at the university for a little bit of time. So I said, fine, went along, auditioned, got the part. And suddenly I'm acting with all these slightly older people, feeling very pleased with myself, very impressed with these stylish university types and all that stuff. And so I went there to see my tutor who looked after my sort there, it was his job to say, what are you going to do? And I said, uh, well, I, you know, I'd quite like to do a little bit of theatre. And he said, oh, now be careful. You know, it can be very addictive. People can get very really involved in, in this. I would I would recommend that you wait, uh, you know, a year and then try and, you know, go to A.D.C. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm already in something... <laughs> You can imagine, his face fell. You know, he just thought, oh, no, we've lost this one already. He hasn't been here for more than 30 minutes, and already he's lost, and I was lost. So I just spent a lot of time when I was at university being in everything and directing loads of things and being, and being in charge of things and being in charge of care. But he said, at the end of my first year, I got invited to be in a review, the annual review, to go audition for it because... I'd done a show which was, it was in the middle of a great big student. It was in the middle of a student discontent. And we'd been doing this show. We moved it into the main, the occupied areas, you know, the lecture halls. And we did it there. And it was a huge, I mean, suddenly we went from playing to about 10 people a night. We played this thing to sort of, you know, a thousand people. It was very addictive. And I was invited as a result of doing that to audition for this annual review. And I was in it the first year. Now, this was just something that happened to me. It was rare. It happened because I was already up to here. I was right. I was almost up to my nose in this stuff already. And suddenly I'm in this. So for four years, I was involved in the footlights. And the first one I did was with John Lloyd. And John Lloyd, I don't know if you're aware of this, Blackadder, and, uh, and all those great uh, shows—not the block News, Blackadder, QI—you know—and directing you know, Rowan Atkinson, all this stuff. He, John, left. He was in his senior year. He left, and I got when he left. Yeah, he saw. I followed him. We all went to work in BBC Radio, including Douglas Adams, because it has the last in those days. The last of the comedy sort of departments left in the world, I think, to make spoken comedy, even before podcasts and things like that. And so off we went, and we all worked there together, and one thing led to another, and we did a big series called Not in the Nine O'Clock News, which moved to television. So we all became like child stars. I mean, I was 26 when that happened, and suddenly it was like being in a band. It was really huge, and, uh, you know, we were the front page of every newspaper in the country, mainly because we had a very, very beautiful uh, girl in called Pamela Stevenson, who went on to marry Billy Connolly, who you may know. So one way or another, it was all quite close. It was all quite connected. Then, as is the way with a lot of these things, it split asunder. After about four years, you could, not you know, because that's just the when you get young people together, the band splits fairly quickly, unless you happen to be the Rolling Stones and you're sensible. So uh, we were more like we were more like the monkeys, as Douglas said. (laughs) (laughs) We were in this created comedy show. It was difficult to remember that because it was a topical show, and we only did, you know, four seasons of it. But it was just a massive hit, and really, since it was about the same time. A Saturday Night Live was setting up, it would have been much better if they just recast and continued for another 50 years. But the way the BBC works, it didn't work like that. So we were all let loose. And I then worked with, uh, started uh, been my mate, Mel Smith, and the two of us fitted together, and we became a sort of double act, which lasted a long time.
2: What was that relationship like as far as the two of you together, and especially when it came to like coming up with ideas? How did you bounce things back and forth? Uh, but the great things about Northern Writing News
4: was, and what made a big difference to the program was, it was really difficult to find a job as a comedy writer in the BBC. I mean, in those days, there were two channels. Uh, there was ITV, but you know, you could arrive and you could claim great things for yourself, but it was difficult to difficult to work your way in. When not the nine o'clock news started, it said to everybody, send us your stuff. It was a freelance show. So it basically was able to say to everybody, send us your stuff. And so Mel and I went on to make another freelance show. And most of what we did was read other people's material and go, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> This suits us We like this stuff And I, I only say that Because it's really important To understand That I ended up Writing about 60% Of the show I wrote the worst stuff And I wrote the best stuff I like to think But you know It's sort of quite To do what amounted To about 30 hours Of sketch comedy Is a big, big deal I mean, When I, when we finally finished And the BBC said we, you know, We're going to retire you Sort of thing I went, oh Thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> As you can imagine sort of waking up every morning from the age of 18 to the age of uh, 42, which is when I you was know, older, 47, I think, uh, sitting there and going, have I got another sketch? <laughs> have I got another idea? And Mel and I wrote some stuff together, but generally I did most of the writing, I'd put my stuff together and then we'd have a meeting where we'd sit with a producer, some of the writers, and we'd sit around and we'd read through this stuff that I'd written. And you can imagine it's a weird thing to be the one who's writing, Mel gave up writing stuff quite quickly, but presenting it to your partner, a bit like Laurel and Hardy, you know, you'd present it and say, What do you think? And he'd be loyal, he'd laugh, but they'd all choose the stuff I thought was the worst. It was sort of inevitable. You know, I go, oh, I see you like this, this slightly crude, easy stuff. What about the more complicated sketch I've written, which has taken me, you know, the best part of a week to write? And they go, no, no, we don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) It was a weird experience. And I got, that was my life. We did it. You know, every summer I'd, I'd retire, sit down and, and, and hack, it, hack away. You know, I genuinely think sometimes you'd be sitting there and you'd come up with great ideas. And other times you'd think that's, I'm looking really closely, but that looks like the bottom of the barrel to me that I'm looking at there. But uh, it was an experience because Mel was a really uh, solid professional person to work with. And we were really different types of people in some respects. He loved uh, gambling, you know, when he had money, bought the leg of a racehorse and things like that. And, uh, and uh, I remember once we went away to write a film and uh, more on some other And uh, he insisted in the middle of writing this to go off to Grassetto to watch the horse racing initially. So we had to go watch Italian horse racing where he didn't understand a word of what they said in the papers about these horses, but he was betting on the form. That, you know, he was addicted to get, get to, to horse racing, stuff like that. And he drank a lot and uh, uh, and he, he was a party man and I was the complete opposite. But when we sat and did stuff together, we laughed at the same things. So, I mean, you've got to blame both of us if ever you go, that wasn't a very funny sketch because we there were times when we did things. I remember one night in the middle of a thing, we did a sketch about a piece of wood where I went into a an antique shop, and I looked around all the antiques, and I came to the man behind the counter, and I said, I'm just looking for a, um, a bit of wood. And he said, a bit of wood? Uh, and I said, yeah, I'll pay a lot if it's the not right piece of wood. And he went, oh, okay, just a minute. I, I'm not, I might have something. And you heard him go off. He went off screen, and then you just heard a huge rending and sawing, <laughs> pulling and grunting, you know, and he came back. With the piece of wood presented to me, and I said, wow, that's a fantastic piece of wood. <laughs> I love it. And he said, wait a minute, I think I, you're going to be excited by this because it's, it's part of a pair. And he pulled up another pair. <laughs> and I just remember, Mel and I found this really funny, this sketch. We found it so funny. We did it to absolute silence. The audience didn't understand what it was about at all anyway there were there were times like that and there were other times where we had great you know great time and we worked with a lot of people so then we set up a production company called Talkback in England an independent production television suddenly opened its doors to independent production and so we established a sort of english tv company we were originally a radio company and then we moved into tv and we made Television with uh, 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 with Alan Partridge, uh, with uh, uh, Steve Coogan, you know, with uh, with um, uh, Ali G, uh, uh, with Ricky Gervais, you know, all those people came and and basically worked for us for a bit, which was great. So we gave a lot of people, a new generation of people, on Andy Unucci. We gave them a lot, and a lot of people a sort of um, a, a platform uh, where, effectively, because this is the way we'd always worked, uh, was to say. Uh, Uh, We need somebody between us and the bosses. So what we offered was a sort of refuge in the middle of Soho. So people didn't have to go work in for the BBC and meet a lot of people with silvery hair and and grey shoes. They could come and work with us, and we didn't really interfere. The policy was, if you're good, we like you. We wouldn't hire you unless we thought you were good, and you get on with the thing. And a guy called Peter Fincham. We went on to create Downton Abbey and various things. He was our first managing director. You know, it was all great. We just, off we went. So we had a, a sort of dual career.
2: I think one of the first things I ever saw you in was uh, the Young Ones episode, Bambi.
4: Well, here's the way that the world works out. Right? The Cambridge lot, the, the varsity people, had set up not like. And then there was another group of people who were younger than us who were coming through, Stephen Fry and Emma Thompson and Hugh Laurie. They were much better than us. (laughs) They were really clever people. And then in Manchester, in another university, there was another group of guys, who Rick Mayle and Ben Elton, and they set up a. Uh, paper they were slightly younger than us so we were you know I mean this is crazy isn't it I mean we're talking about about three years you know three years younger than us we're not talking about sort of you know like we were old and they were we we were all young we just so what had happened with with uh, that is they started the young ones and one of the directors I remember came to us and said, he was working with us, he said, oh, I've just seen this amazing programme. You know, we're making, we've been working this amazing programme called The Young Ones. And we all went, nah, well, you know, <laughs> we shall see, maybe. And then, of course, it became a mammoth hit. And to, to be honest, it was really generous of them to come to us and say, you know, would you like to be in it, come and play a part in it? which was, you know, uh, a fantastic opportunity. We were happy to do. I mean, one of them number, who I'm not going to mention, said uh, when, they, when it was suggested, he said, but I thought we hated those guys. So <laughs> anyway, I turned up and I just saw it the other day because I was playing Bamba Gascoigne, who was uh, the host of this University Challenge quiz show. And University Challenge is still going. It's been going and it's 50 years old. So uh, they had a sort of ceremony. They had a big program to celebrate it. And I was called in because of my impersonation. And I had to say, I can't remember anything about it. It was all so long ago. It was, you know, it was 40 years ago. I can't remember what happened. But uh, I watched it, and it was amazing to see such a fantastic bunch of people all gathered together for one, for one episode of this show, which was a funny show.
2: So you talked a little bit about the writing of Morons from Outer Space, and I'm so curious how that project even came to be, because this was your first feature, your first feature script that you're doing. EMI, the producers, British
4: film producers, had a rank, had, which you know, was a, 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 a relatively august production house, had a new uh, head, a new newly in charge. So we had been asked... Because of the success of Python, five, 10 years before, we've been asked if we could make a film of Not the Nine O'clock News, which was a very different sort of show because it was more like Animal House. I mean, it was topical and it was or Saturday Night Live. How would you make a How would you make a film at a Saturday Night Live? But at the stage, we were already in the beginnings of the Great Split. So I could tell. I mean, Rowan already he, he already had Rowan Atkinson already had a bit of a sort of you know a vision for what would happen to Rowan Atkins. And yeah, funnily enough, it didn't include me and Mel. I forgive him. You know, who wouldn't? He's become a great star, and really brilliant. But, uh, you know, so we thought, oh, we're setting up a production company. We're doing a lot of things together, me and Mel. And so I said, well, I've got this idea for a film. Let's try and make a, 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 an outline of it and see if anybody salutes it. And the the simple idea was, what if the people who arrived from outer space were as stupid as everybody on Earth because it's always assumed that the people who are going to arrive from outer space are going to be either monstrous who kill everything or deeply intelligent bring in all this space. What if they were just people on holiday who crashed on Earth? I liked very much the sort of storyline, and I worked out quite a complicated storyline, and that was the thing that interested me and then we started to add gags to it, one card to another. I'm fascinated because the film, we made the film, it was big budget stuff. We got big money from, from EMI to make it. We went up, we had that fantastic crash on the uh, motorway, which was brilliantly staged, you know, with the spaceship arriving out of space. We had a lot of big gags in it. We had uh, Jimmy Nail, who's a big big name in it at the time. Interestingly, we decided selflessly and rather stupidly in retrospect to separate the two characters of me and Mel. And I felt, and this is a weird thing, if you're the writer of a film, you do need to overcome all modesty and push yourself forward. Because if you're the writer, you think, oh, I'm going to hide. <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for this, and I'd written most of the film, so I felt very much. Although Mel and I had been away to write it, we went away to the film, but we had a script, and I felt very much I, I must, I must, you know, be careful about taking the part. You know, so I, I took a sort of uh, a secondary part in some respects. Anyway, we then went and made it, and it got released, and it got the worst reviews that any film has ever had in the The critics absolutely loathed it. They thought it was an insult to them. We had Mike Hodges, poor Mike Hodges, who's a great director. He directed Flash Gordon. He directed uh, The Croupier later. He directed Get Cart. I mean, he was really famous and a really, really lovely man. I mean, a brilliant and clever man to work with. So, in other words, he wasn't used to making what we might call low comedy uh it was it was worth used to make it slightly higher higher sort of endeavored films and we i you know i don't think we had readied ourselves for the shitstorm that we knocked up i mean it was absolutely incredible so we made it it went out and we ran a mile from it i mean we just when she went into hiding, you sort of go into Perda. You go and lock the door and hope. I was in a play. I remember when it came out and I had to go on stage every night. I used to think, as I was going on stage, I am thinking, what if there are people who have seen the film? <laughs> and one critic said, uh, wrote, the Time Out critic, I think, wrote, die before you see this film. I mean, it's amazing. So I hadn't seen it for years and years and years. And then... Mike and I got phone calls only about a year ago, a year ago, two years ago, from the British Film Institute, you know, which is really august. It's the sort of, it's the top of the, it's the top of the tree. Uh, and they bring it up from somebody saying, um, I need to talk to you. You know, we're going to have a showing more on Smash space. We went, oh, no, please, please don't do that. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 I've written a book about it. And this guy had written a." a book about our film. And we went, what, a film about great disasters, you know? And he said, no, 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 it's, really, it's a film. The film was ahead of its time, and it was full of this stuff. So Mike and I went to a showing, the first showing I think either of us have been to, because Mike is always going, he was telling me, he always goes to film festivals across the world because he's such a distinguished director. And whenever somebody says, you know, they get finally in the film festival, somebody turns to him and says, so, Mike, do you want to tell us a little bit about Morons from Outer Space? And Mike goes, no, no, let's move on. <laughs> and neither of us had ever quite sat down and watched it, certainly not with an audience of fans, enthusiasts for it. And I have to admit, there are sticky patches in it. You know, there are things I would, I would redo. And I suppose... Today we'd make that film we put it out in front of you know preview audiences a bit more but I also thought well there's some really straightforward funny moments in this film and it's quite a profound film you know it's got I know it's sort of about morons but it's but it's quite a profound statement to make in a funny sort of way so there we are um all I can say is that Mel's been dead for about eight years now and he unfortunately he you know uh, he died when really, far too young. But I just wish he was around because I want to ring him up. You know, I want to ring him up in heaven or wherever he's ended up and say, uh, you know, Mel, it's Griff. <laughs> You're never going to believe this. <laughs> so it's not such a bad watch, more or less, man. You know, I, uh, it's not such a bad watch. It's got some great gags in it. There's a wonderful moment uh you know, you watch these, a the writer, and you forget about them. You know, the whole business about the guy playing Truffaut who plays the organ is very funny. And the uh, stuff about, you know, Mel starting off and sneezing into his, uh, into his space helmet, you know, and suddenly the whole of the front of the space helmet is funny. And the business about the... Um, uh, there's a riot going on outside where all the people are rioting because the aliens have landed, you know, and they want to speak to the aliens, they want to get the words of wisdom from the aliens. And while we're watching it inside the house where we're hiding, uh, one of the, um, Joanne says, uh, she said, oh, look, look, somebody's throwing a brick. And I lean into the television to have a look. The brick comes through the window. <laughs> I mean, in a funny way, I think, the essence is there where we sort of in those days between two stools because it was the time of airplane as well. And I think maybe we could have focused on getting more and more and more, you know, sight gags in, more and more big. There's a wonderful sequence where I've stolen somebody's uniform and I'm walking around trying to get close to the aliens. And I pass people, but I've got somebody else's name on my uniform. So I put my hand up to uh, cover the name. And soon that becomes a salute, and everybody around the, the place is going around saluting each other, like that, which had just started from the thing. And I like the other stuff, which was, which I always thought was great. Where I'm, we're trying to escape, and there's a man sort of standing guard on a on the on the exit, and I hit him over the head with a with a metal bar, you know, and he just gets up and goes, "Ow, Christ, ow." What on earth did you do that? For? Follows me down. <laughs> and the point is that we were full of references to other films, you know, all the way through. There are references to other sci fi films and and and, uh, and escape films, things like that. And, you know, I just think the critics didn't like it. I think they thought it was presumptuous or something of us to take the piss out of the ET and all that stuff. So, uh, I think, anyway, it was. Uh, an amazing film to make, and I just ran away. and never made another film. <laughs> I never really the right one. I just thought, oh no, this is just too humiliating, and which is a pity. I think I should have written more films. We did have a guy. This was the first time we realised that was something about weird about Morris Mouse Space was we got an approach. The my agent rang me up and said, "There's a man who wants to make a film with you," and I I said, "Right, uh, who's that <laughs> then?" And they said, well, he's a, a, he's a New York real estate agent who has a friend who works in a video shop. And they've decided that Morons from Outer Space is the funniest film. And they watch it all the time. And they want to make Morons too. In fact, it had done so well at the box office for EMI that EMI wanted to make Morons too. But the complication was, when I look back, we'd been in a show, not the I news, which had been the sort of toast of the, not not just of the general public, but of the literati. Do you know what I mean? It had been recognised, been saluted by the critics. Not when it first started. Not when it first started. When it first started, somebody said, who are these wankers? Do you know? But, uh, you know, that's comedy. That's comedy. And really, we should have been strong because people say in any new comedy, somebody appears. Uh, they either hailed them or say, who are these wankers? You know, and in this particular film, they said, who are these wankers? So you know, we, it was a bit of a shock after having been the toast of the town to be called morons and not capable of making a film. Unfortunately, I, I then got embroiled in making my own sketch show, and I didn't get back to thinking about film for a while.
2: You and Mel were in a film, though, together, Wilt. How was that experience?
4: Well, that was weird as well, because – I worked with the producers in uh, a television adaptation of the same – he Tom Sharp had written a series of very successful Baroque novels, you know, slightly over-the-top novels. I've been in that. It was good for television with the producers' carnival. And so they started talking about making a film of Wilt. And obviously, as a performer, you go, oh, great, thank you very much and uh, i was very honored that they'd come to me to do this really fantastic so uh we go on for a little bit and then they say uh, at a meeting they say and you'll never guess who's going to play the policeman so i thought i wonder i wonder who it'll be it'll be rick male or or maybe it'll be stephen Fry, or you know and they said mel <laughs> and the funny thing about being in any double act, as anybody who's in a double act, is you'll never appreciate it just for yourself. People always want to see the pair of you. They always go, where's your mate? You know, when you walk down there. So <laughs> I wasn't overjoyed by the knowledge that they got Mel to play the other part because then it became what I saw as a vehicle for the two of us. But it was a perfectly, it was a decent film a re- record of it, but it wasn't a huge success. It was all right. Again, the difficulty is in life. You learn that comedy is a is a complicated business because when people don't really go 100 percent for you, uh, and film is particularly true like this. You know, you find yourself pretty bruised by the reactions to it. But we did it, and it was great. How did you get into the travel business? Well, I took retirement. What happened to me was I, I'd done this sketch show. I had a production company, and without being too sort of sorry for myself in this, but I mean. That was a, a major part of the production family. You know, you're making these every year. There's a lot of budget. There's a lot of money. And that's how you keep it. You have to work. You have to do it. And so, you know, for 15 years, I made this series, you know, and I was basically the writer. And I found it, as I told you, a slightly exhausting process of being there because I don't think it did me, personally, as a human being, a lot of good. Have you seen the Lauren and Hardy film with uh, oh, Steve yeah. Moon? It's great. But I watched that on the plane. I'm afraid there were tears rolling down my, uh, my cheeks because so I was thinking, my God, this is just like what it was like working with Mel. Do you know what I mean? Sort of like Mel wanted me to go out there and talk to the producers. and He was happy if I did and he didn't care. Do you know what I mean? So you become like, it's like a marriage. <laughs> one of you starts to be the one who goes and de- deals with certain things. And- <laughs> so we finished it. We sat down and I sat down with a load of writers I really loved who I'd worked with, and we wrote a sitcom called Three Floors Up. It was just two men, and the idea which we'd started to work on in our show was really about a fairly broad comedy, but really basically about two men in a room. Two men in a room, and we wrote a pilot, uh, which was about plumbing. has gone off. Mel no wants to watch a football match. He's invited people around. We get a plumber in, and we're sitting there freezing to death in our own office, trying to carry on working. But we were cartoonists, and he was the one who did the drawings. It took him 20 seconds to do the Mr. Men drawings, and I was the one who used to write the column. So uh, it would take me all day (laughs) to write them the words of the situation. <laughs> and we did it deliberately, as we often did, as a sort of ironical comment on how we lived. Anyway, we had it all sorted out what we are going to do next. We made the sitcom, and I remember our boss, producer, said, uh, the head of our company, Peter, said, well, you know, if they're looking, what's the problem? It's funny. It's hilarious. And this is great, you guys. I mean, we, we're, we've got a winner here. But they turned it down. And we realised that or I realised gradually, that there was nothing I could do. They said, I think it needs a woman in it, you know, and uh, I think one of you needs to be a woman. And I said, that's ludicrous, you know, we're two blokes. You can't write one of the parts to be a woman, you know. We can obviously introduce a woman, there's no problem there, but you can't, well, could you write it with a woman? No, I... I write this myself. I'm not a woman. You know, it's just crazy. Anyway, we realized that as time was going on, then we were just looking for ways of saying we don't want to work with you. So you go, okay, if you're heading for the madhouse, you fight that. Do you know what I mean? You try to do everything you can. But if you're like me, you go, oh, okay, I see the way it's going. Because things like we remade it, rewrote the whole script, sent it in, and then the they letter back said, I think the time has passed for this. And you go, my God, we've gone away to do three months' work on this script, to bring it into line with what you're saying. And as soon as we've done that, you just say, I think the time has passed. You know, Okay, I think the time has passed. I went to see Joe, my wife. I said, darling, you know, I'm buying a boat. We're going to sail around the world. <laughs> don't fuss it's all right it's all over and that's what we that's what we do but we'll have a fantastic time you know the last thing i want to do is stay in london and constantly pick up the phone say anything for me you know that sort of life we've got plenty of life we've got a big company which made which we're now selling and you know let's let's just accept what's happened and not fight it i bought a boat a slightly smaller boat than the one we're going to sail around the world in but uh she didn't want to come because the kids, so I said, it's all right, don't worry. we'll go so we sailed off to sail to Russia to St. Petersburg from Kent in uh, London, going up. and the only reason we wanted to go there was because we could get there without losing sight of land. So me and a mate bought the boat, and a long time since I'd had a boat, I knew how to sail. We sort of got as far as Denmark, and the phone rang, my agent said, "I oh, they want you to do something else." I want you to do a program about old buildings that need saving. So I said, Oh, all right, I'll come back I'll come back and do that then. I'm just going to go to St. Petersburg, but I'll be back at the end of the summer. So I sailed on, and uh, I always believe that that's like fate. You know, you've just got to accept the way the thing is going and, and not worry about it. And if I hadn't done that, I'd have probably been busy trying to be in somebody else's comedy program, but I was asked to go and do this program. That led to another. Thing. And then suddenly I wrote my book about sailing to the Baltic. And then I get picked up and I'm doing programs on mountains and rivers in Britain and things like that. And so I'm just wandering the world, pointing at things and saying how beautiful and moving around. And to be honest, I have to say that to get out of the studio environment for a while, to just go, okay, it's not a bad thing to not be waking up every morning, beating your head and going, I haven't got any funny ideas or where are we going to find some funny writers to help us here? You know, it was a good thing. And I loved, and I loved working that way. You work quick, you work with a team and I'll always like working in teams uh, and you work with cameramen and I I've just been to Canada. So I've done a big series in Canada, which will be uh, pitching up on television, but I've been, uh, and then I was picked up by an Australian company about four years ago. So I've made ones on uh, On New Zealand to the Australian railways, things. However, I still do a lot of comedy because I started another production company which made travel and things, and then I did that for about ten years. Then I moved out of that, retired from that, and that was partly because I decided I uh, that's all right, I've had a break. <laughs> I've had a break, a ten-year break. You may think that's quite a long time, but it's time for me to get out there and do comedy again. So I do a show, and I've I've done four separate, three separate tours uh, of the show, uh, and uh, it's just a sort of one-man show. And it's I, I've never been. I'd come from sketch comedy, but I love being in in that. So I love it. I tell stories, and uh, I tell funny stories. So I, one way or another. This is great it's a really great entertaining way of and also after so many years uh starting in in 1980 just before 1980 and getting to uh, try after 40 years 35 years before i went to talk to be able to go and just say what i like without somebody saying i tell you what We love what we're doing, Griff, but can you introduce uh, that's a bit too strong or we need this, you know, or you ought to be doing more of that. It's just fantastic. Uh, You know, the programmes I was making had, you know, nine executive producers working on them, all of which thought their job was dependent on them having an input. And there's a point where you go, okay, how great. I walk on stage in front of an audience in Cardiff or wherever, in London, walk on stage. That's me. That's the audience. (laughs) And nobody should tell me what I have to say. And if I want to start the whole show by telling other stories, things I've never told before, I'll do it. That's great.
2: Uh, It's wonderful. Have you ever thought about pairing up with Michael Palin and doing like a trip show together? Maybe comedians and trains getting tea or something? I
4: guess that's an idea that will be passed in front of us soon. You should take out a copyright on that one because uh, inevitably what happens is you start doing these things and they say, they ring me up. They say, uh, Bradford, this is a whole thing in the Mediterranean. And I said, yeah, yeah. And they said, we've been talking to the channel and they think, I hope you don't mind this. And you go, well, try me out. Uh, (laughs) They "They think you need to present it with somebody else. I said, right, Okay. And uh, I said, no problem for me. I, just, I mean, I like it. I like working with other people, and I like to do new things. So why don't we lead it on?" They said, "But there's a bit of a problem." Um, I said, "Right. But what's the problem?" And they said, "Well, it would have to be a diverse casting." Right. Okay. That's good. I'm moving with the times. I have no no fix. I love. It. I've got lots and lots of diverse friends. <laughs> I said, "I'll put a list together of people who might want to do it." So I sent them the name of uh, uh, a black lesbian comedian that I had worked with and said, What about her? And they said, oh, It doesn't have to be as diverse as that. <laughs> <laughs> But in the end, we didn't make it. We didn't. We didn't get it together on the program. But it was great. I mean, for a while, for a while, I thought that's great. Well, let's go in that direction. But you know, in a funny way, there comes a point where, especially when you've been around knocking around as long as I have, where you don't necessarily want to do rubbish. But you also notice that you know you need to keep presents out there, otherwise people don't come see the show. So I do think it's partly because I go. but, yeah, let's do that. It was great. And so. The ones on Australia, and New Zealand were big hits and went into onto Netflix, and I was really I was really happy to see them there. It was fantastic, and I and I do absolutely love making those shows. I mean, we move like the clappers, you know. We we don't have. I mean, when I first started, I made a thing called Slow Train Across Africa, which was a really great, great, great series. Um, but for ITV, the wrong sort of thing. They they didn't do it the right thing with it. it doesn't matter. It still exists, and I'm sitting, for example, in a. I'm sitting in a restaurant in Oslo because I've done a journey, just me and my wife, just for fun, for a newspaper, from Bergen across the Hard Plateau by train. It's a, great tra- it's a great train journey, one of the great train journeys in the world. And it goes up into the frozen waste of the mountains and then comes down to Oslo. I'm sitting, I go for a – when we've been in Oslo, we go for a meal and a bloke sitting on a table, three tables away, suddenly got up and went, oh. And I said, right. And he came over to the table and said, oh, hey, hey, slow train through Africa. <laughs> One of the great things about doing travel shows is you suddenly confront people who seen the programme in the most unlikely circumstances. I was in um, a market in Tunisia, no, in Algiers, in fact. So I'm talking about a place which is actually right off the beaten track, Algiers. And we were going to make couscous and we've been taken I've been taken by somebody to go and buy the ingredients to make this to, in the market in Algeria Algeria as a country is, is the biggest country in Africa, now, but it has fewer than two hundred thousand visitors from outside in a year because it's had a terrible history, civil war and everything but I'm in the market and I'm trying to buy some uh, tomatoes and the man who's serving me the tomatoes, somebody goes, my god it's it's you." <laughs> Was while making slow train for Africa. and what he watched, I can't remember. But it was absolutely fantastic, you know. So television is very disparate these days. When we used to make Northern micron News, used to be watched by 18 million people every night, you know. And now, you know, there's so much television everywhere that you know, the big big hitters are slightly different, you know. But um, because they they often hit emotionally for strong people. But I sit there and I watch Game of Thrones and I go. I'd ring up my agent and say, everybody's in Game well, You know, all my friends are in it. What's wrong with me? <laughs> At least Harry Potter, if nothing else. And really, I'll come in, I, I could turn up and do a bit of that, but it's all, you either get it or you don't get it, and then it's come up. But still, I'm making a film with Phil Trail about skiing, guys, so I'm, I'm back making a film after uh, Christmas. I'm really
2: pleased. Mr. Jones, thank you so much for your time. This was so great talking with you. It was
4: very good to talk to you. I hardly let you get a word in edgeways, but I'm sorry. It's like I'm on stage again.
2: We are back and we're talking about Morons from outer space. So, John, you've made mention a few times of your book, and I really want to hear more about that, how you came to write about that. And have you done any of these other forgotten cinema books since then?
5: No. <laughs> it's, uh, so, basically, um, I'd written my first book, which was called Videosyncratic, which was about kind of my life in video shops. Had really enjoyed doing that. And I was kind of between film projects. And I wanted to write another, start writing again quickly. The only idea I had was to write a book about more out smart space, which is this yeah, you know, I mean, it's a really bad idea of like dedicating a year of your life or more to a book which is not going to get published and which no one is going to buy. And actually, the foreword of, of the book is written by Frank Turner. Kind of a star. So he's touring America right now. Actually, he's one of my old friends, and he's now kind of like a big rock star. And he goes and plays arenas and stuff. And he's the only person until I met you guys who, in an idle conversation, we found out that we both loved Morris Man Space*. Because he said to me, "What are you doing? What are you working on?" And I said, "I'm going to write a book about a film called *Mars Man Space*. He was like, "That's my favorite film." And I was like, "Shut up!" And he was like, "It's my favorite film. Tell me the whole story about how he got into it." So I was like, well, fuck it, I'm doing it then. Okay, you know, I'm emboldened, I'm going to do this. But I, I kind of wimped out slightly by making it a part work. So, so the idea is it's called The Forgotten Film Club, and I've written all these, these rules about which films qualify for The Forgotten Film Club. And the books are pretty thin volumes, and they're more like a collection of essays around the film, you know? So it's, it's not kind of a straight narrative. So it's kind of a collection of essays and interviews around the film. Yeah, I just I, I threw myself into it. I wrote it kind of very quickly because I had a huge passion for it, and really, you know, I, I was looking at kind of part of the book is about the film, and part of the book is about my relationship with the film because that's kind of almost what interests me about it. And we went off on some really bizarre tangents, and you know, at one point I went into the the BBFC, which is the the censor in this country, and, and kind of asked for their files on *Morris from Space*. And one of the things that was fascinating is the one of the reasons it got a higher rating, you know, it's like a 15 or whatever when it came out is because in one shot, an X, a naked extra just runs into the background and screams something and gets taken away. And in the, the notes, they said, you can see a flaccid penis flapping, you know, flapping about. So we can't let children kind of see this film. So one, one whole chapter of the book is me finding out whose penis it is because i was just like, well, who is this guy? Like, you know, all of a sudden, I'm like, well, this, there's some relevance to this. So, you know, one whole chapter goes on an adventure to find out who is the guy with the penis. And it turns out his name is Fred Woods. It turns out that people I, I know knew him and were friends with him. And I get the whole story of this guy's, of, of who this guy is. And then that disappears. There's a point at which, because I obsessively kind of collect things, I'm trying to find if there's any props or anything left from more of this matter space. And there's basically kind of nothing. But then in doing that, I discover the story, which you alluded to earlier of the helmets, you know, and it turns out that all of the the, the space helmets in this film, they got cheap off the rack because they were left over from Outland, you know, which for the, for they were made for the Sean Connery from Outland. But then it turns out they made so many of these helmets that for the next 20 years, whenever a British film or TV show or advert had a spaceman in it, they use these exact same helmets and you can see it through all of these different kind of shows. And and so, yeah, it was, it was a kind of mad journey. And, and, you know, there's been part of the fun of the book is, is, you know, it's opened up. I did it as a Kickstarter and it it was quite successful and I've sold quite a bunch of copies. You can get it on, on Kindle now on on Amazon. But one of the four great kind of fallouts of, of writing this book is that because I got in touch with, Stephen lane at propstore.com to, who, who i knew anyway i'd made a film about him when i was at the bfi so he's a nice guy but i'd, I'd, I'd you know i'd got in touch with specifically to talk about Morris about space and he had said to me nothing has really ever come up from this film like nothing and i'd even said to griff i was hoping that like you know i was like have you got anything like where's the spaceship like that must have been a great model where is that you know and he's like i've got nothing like all he had was the original storyboards it clearly stuck in Stephen lane's head and then, I don't know, a year or two later, I get this email from Stephen Lane and he's like, John, you're not going to believe this. I've got Mel's spacesuit here. Yeah. And I was just like, I have to own that. And he goes, I know. You can have it cheap. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> he goes, no one else is going to buy this. <laughs> and he did me an amazing deal. So I now own Mel Smith spacesuit from Morons. My wife won't let me keep it in the house at this point because it stinks like it's really it hadn't been cleaned and uh, and at some point i'm gonna get it professionally cleaned i think a lot of it was from the land. i think it was one of the ones he wore when he first landed on earth so it's got that kind of red mud kind of all over it and stuff but i can't track down a helmet i've been i have been desperately trying to find a helmet to kind of finish it off and um, that's that is now the the mission of my life so if any of your listeners even know where to get an actual or a replica helmet of the outland helmets, I've even written to the guy who made them originally, and he's just he has no interest in making anyone. and I know he's got the original molds, but he, he's, he's not doing that at all. so that's, that is now my, my main mission in life is to find a helmet to finish that off and finally kind of get that on display. It was a very validating experience to write that book and to finally get all of my kind of love for this film on the page and in a kind of coherent form has been great. And it's led to things like this. It's actually, in fact, the, the weirdest thing, the weirdest fallout from this whole thing is that when I am, um, the Kickstarter campaign went really well. And I'm friendly with, with the guys who run the Prince Charles cinema in London, which is, you know, right in the center of town, really great indie, indie cinema. And we talked about whether we could do a screening of more or less about space. And I, begged mike i was like you've got to come like i want to do a screening i want you to come i want griff to come they hadn't spoken to each other since the film had been made and when i got in touch with griff and set up the interview he phoned mike and they went for lunch together and they had a lovely time this is i mean this is like if 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 my career is worth anything this is what i have achieved (laughs) is that i have brought kind of like a certain amount of kind of um Comfort to to both Mike and Griff, because for both of them, this film represented something very negative. And for Griff, when he had lunch with Mike, it made him really happy. And he was about if when we did the interview, he hadn't rewatched it, but he said he said I'm ready to rewatch it now. And after we did the interview, he said I'm ready to rewatch it now because he got excited talking about. He remembered what he'd loved about coming up with the idea and what he'd wanted to do. So after we did the interview, he went and rewatched it. Mike didn't rewatch it, but Mike agreed Mike loved the book. So what had happened is I'd interviewed Mike for the BFI and I'd used that in the book, but I'd been too scared to phone Mike up and do another interview because I really got the feeling that when we did the BFI interview, he shut me down. That he spoke about morons to a certain point, and then it was clear he did not want to talk about it anymore. So I changed the subject. So I put it in the book. And then bizarrely one day through my website, his name cropped up and he'd ordered like 15 copies of the book. I hadn't sent him, I should have sent him a copy, but I was too scared. But he found out about it through Griff. So he ordered 15 copies. So I canceled the order and I sent him like a box of 30 copies. And was like, you know, I'm so sorry, I should have sent you these anyway. And when he read the book, he loved the book so much that he was like, okay, I'm ready to watch this film. So I said to both of them, right, Let's do this. Let's just do a screening and let's do a Q and A and let's have fun with this. And it sold out. We sold the screen out. It was, um, it's the first time the Morris have been shown in the cinema in this country since its release. We sold it out in central London and I did a Q and A with Mike and Griff on stage afterwards. And when Mike was coming to the stage, he just said to me, uh, he just said to me as he was sitting down, that was wonderful, John. And he seeing it, in a room full of people laughing all the right points for both of those guys. When they came out of that screening, they were walking on out. They were both so happy. And like I said, my career has achieved anything it is those guys finally understand now what they did. They finally, they don't look at that film as a failure. And the fact that, you know, the Griff is willing to do an interview with you about it as well. You know, he'll talk about it now, you know, and Mike will talk about it now. And that makes me so happy. The BFI, just did a retrospective of of Mike's whole career, and they showed more from outer space. And I think, had we not done all this, I can't imagine that would have got a screening. He wouldn't have allowed it to, you know. So yeah, that's 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 my probably my biggest achievement in my time on this planet is probably offering a
2: bomb to the creators of
0: Morris from Out of space. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, it's like me and Black Shampoo, trying to get the word out, trying, you know, like luckily, well, I mean, some of the people associated with it, like when I was talking with uh, Tanya Boyd, when I brought that up, she was just like, "Okay, interview over. Thanks. Bye. And it was like,
0: (laughs) fuck, you know, but
2: managed to talk to John Daniels and then Graydon and I, you know, still stay in contact. But it's just it was just amazing to be like experiencing part of the film that you love so much as a child, you know, or as a young person and being able to have this better connection with it. And so I, I just applaud you for being able to bring this film out to more people and then being able to bring those two gentlemen together and being to be like, yeah, this isn't the worst thing in the world. You know, people love it.
5: When I made my first feature film and, and I got very upset about some of the kind of some response to it initially, A very good friend of mine kind of took me aside. He's actually a a musician, and he said to me, "Once you put this stuff out into the world, it's not your business anymore. It's for other people. It's it's not for you anymore. You have to let it take on a life of its own. You can't guide it. You can't get upset about it. You can't kind of comment on it." And I think that's actually one of the lovely things about anything creative that you you know you. I remember Terry Gilliam saying that the making films is like. Being alone in a boat on a, on a lake at night and firing a flare gun into the sky. When you see other flare guns go off, you know, you're not alone. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's really nice to kind of have the validation of kind of other people's responses to things. But I think that even works for things that you're not happy about. And I think as a creative person, you can beat yourself up about something not being what you wanted it to be. But the truth is that doesn't matter because it's going to take on an importance to other people which is really special in their lives. And and I think that's true of film in a big way. I think film is very emotional. People's responses to things are, you know, it's not just about the film. It's about the time you saw it and who you saw it with. And that can make something really, really special. And that can be very confusing to the creators who obviously don't have that connection to it at all. But if you can take a step back and, and look at what your work has become for other people, it can be a very special thing.
1: Another thing, too, and I'm not comparing the quality of these two films, but it also uh, factors into perspective. The movie I'm talking about is John Carpenter's The Thing. When that movie came out, it was after E.T. and critics and audiences hated the movie, like absolutely hated the movie. The director of The Thing from Another World, he came out. And lambasted the thing like he said, it was, you know, he said it was terrible. Uh, I, th- I believe his quote was, um, if you want meat, go to the butcher shop. Uh, he just thought it was endless gore, And now here we are decades later. And it's considered one of the best sci fi movies ever. It is beloved. And so a lot of times uh, going to morons from outer space on the complete other end of the spectrum is it's not as quality as something like The Thing. But it's a movie that I think more people have appreciated over the years. And I'm genuinely surprised that it hasn't been picked up yet by one of these boutique uh, Blu-ray companies, you know, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin. One, of, It seems like the perfect movie for them to pick up.
5: I tried to do it myself. I, I literally I went out searching for the rights because I was like, if no one else is going to do this. I put out a DVD once, which no one's heard of called Jerk Beast. <laughs> and that, that tanked the label that I tried to create. Oh no. <laughs> so that was good. That bankrupted me immediately. But so I, I kind of had a bit of experience. Like I said, you know what? For morons, I would do this. I was like, I'm friends with Michael Griff. I could make an amazing Blu-ray. We could do it on Kickstarter. I've got a big following on Kickstarter. I know that it wouldn't lose money. And I went to the rights holders. And it was just a nightmare. The amount of money they wanted. And that was for an SD master. Oof! And I was just like, it's, it's never been mastered in, in HD, let alone kind of 4K or anything. And you're absolutely right. I just got the, the Severin Return of Captain Invincible three-disc set, you know? And that's another film which I adored as a kid and I'm so happy to see. Like, there has to be someone has to pick up this fucking film. It's a Mike Hodges film. Is the missing Mike Hodges film. Put this fucking film out.
1: Yeah, it, it kills me with how many like some of the movies that get picked up. I mean, I'm happy that a lot of movies get picked up where I'm like, what? But then there's something like this where it's like, why isn't this? Like, what what's you know? And it's gotta be something uh either they, they can't find the negatives or it's just that there's they don't think there's demand for it or what i i don't know but i mean i can't imagine that there's not somebody out there i mean like you said you did the screening for it yeah and we sold out sold, sold out, out. Uh, it's baffling to me i'm i'm always surprised with that but then i guess i shouldn't be entirely shocked because i was talking with shadow stevens about uh, his movie tracks oh god another great one another great one exactly the original movie that it was supposed to be uh, was c- was quite different. So uh, he was trying to track down the rights so that he could re-edit it and release both versions, release you know, his cut and release the actual cut. And uh, he found out that HBO currently owns the rights and he tried to buy the rights from them. They, it wasn't a matter of money. They just refused to sell it because they're like, you know what? We own this, and we just don't want to do anything with it. He's like, well, sell it to me. I want to do something with it. And they're like, nah, we'd rather just bury it. And so he's he's depressed because he's like, I want to show, you know, how my version was. And I, he's like, it's not even a money issue. He's like, they just they just will not deal. And so that could be the thing. Maybe whoever does own the rights just doesn't want to deal
5: morons was made by thorn emi you know which is which is a long gone bust label so the rights do kind of bounce around um i'd be interested to know who's who owns the u.s rights because i think it's mgm which is i don't i don't know if they i don't know what they're like about licensing to boutique labels
1: oh they but, you yeah, know mgm licenses to uh, mgm licenses to everybody
5: well, in that case, anyone who's listening from vinegar syndrome or or from from severin should get those rights and we'll all help you and do an amazing blu ray actually i the the one the one thing we've not touched on which or we've touched on lightly, which I think needs to be emphasized, is how great Jimmy nail is oh fuck yeah and Jimmy nail is a fascinating character to me. You can get his autobiography, which is a really interesting read, but this is a guy who has lived a ridiculous life. He was literally, he was a, uh, I think he, he made stained glass windows. He was like all windows in general. It's like doing glazing. That's what he did. And he was a heavy drinker and he was a fighter on the streets of Newcastle. And eventually he got put in prison. And when he came out of prison, he met a girl who fell in love with him, who was from kind of like a middle-class family. He was staunchly working class. And she, got him kind of more on the up and up. And one day there was an advert in the paper for Newcastle-born actors to appear in a TV series. And she said, you should audition for this. And he was like, I'm not an actor. And she said, I don't care. They're describing you. You should go and audition for this part. And then he got the lead role in a huge TV series called Auf Wiedersehen Pet over here, which was all about Newcastle builders going and working in Germany. Got the best theme song of any tv show definitely try and listen to the theme song and all of a sudden he has this career all of a sudden he's an actor and um, he is a weirdly fickle actor he's made enough money privately he says in his autobiography that he made his money on on real estate very early on so he doesn't have to act so he doesn't crop up that often but when he does it's always really interesting and the other film that he made which is which is I put alongside morons as one of those films that I'll put on when I need cheering up. You know, if I'm feeling ill, this goes on. Is the movie still crazy? Have you seen still crazy? Doesn't sound familiar. Oh my God. You would love it. So it's about, uh, it's a British film comedy about a band who split up in the 1970s and then in the 1990s, absolutely reform in the nineties. It's got Bill Nighy as the lead singer, Jimmy Nail is the bass player. Um, who else is in the film? Uh, Timothy Spall is the drummer and Stephen Ray is the keyboard player. And it's about their disastrous reunion European tour. And it's so funny and it's got so much pathos and the music is really good. Like Spinal Tap, you know, like it's a Spinal Tap a, a kind of purposefully kind of the songs are satirical. Like the songs in Still Crazy actually aren't satirical, but they're really good. And it's got an amazing cameo by Bruce Robinson. And the film has got so much fucking heart. And you know, that's why I I love Jimmy Nail. He is just pathos is the word that always comes to mind. I love
2: seeing him on screen. He's just electric. Let's go ahead and take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show.
0: いや、できないものはちな
2: That's right. We're kicking off another grab bag month of films with a look at Kenji Fukasaku's Black Lizard, which I don't think has a proper Blu-ray release. I'll have to check that out before then. Until then, I want to thank this week's co host Cecil and John. So Cecil, what's been happening with you, sir?
1: I am working on tons and tons and tons of videos. Uh, I have got uh, a big one coming out for Judge Dredd, the other Stallone one with a history and a half. I'm working on *Cat's Eye* with uh, the, the Lewis Teague um, Stephen King adaptation, uh, or not adaptation, but uh, you know there was two stories from *Night Shift* and one original uh, story that was written for the screen. Lots of stuff I'm doing. My first con in August, going to be at this uh, sci-fi fest in uh, Vernon, New York, with uh, Peter the Cinemascist and uh, Brandon Tenold. Uh, we're all going to like riff a movie alive and it'll be interesting. I've never done one before, so I don't know uh what to expect. So uh
2: lots and lots of stuff going on. And John, I know you are super busy these days. Can you uh tell the poor folks at home what you've been up to lately? I'm actually finally not busy. The last two weeks I've had off for the first time in many, many
5: years, but I've just finished my first ever T V series, which is a four part modern history of British cinema called real r-e-e-l britannia that's out in the uk now it's going to come out in the us on britbox in about a month's time uh and that is basically a breakneck tour from 1959 to the 2010s covering pretty much the entire story of modern british cinema we have lots of fun with it we hit all of the expected notes but we also go off piste a lot and look at the weirder films and the crazier films and and it's huge interviews. We've got interviews with Terry Gilliam, Ken Loach, Mike Lee, Sally Potter, Gorinda Chada, Edgar Wright, Terence Davis. Some for some reason all the big hitters came out and, and we got all of them. So it's the very apex of my of my career. It's been an incredible journey making it. And yeah, it's incredible that it's now out in the world. And getting
2: nice reviews. Did you do a whole episode on Morons from Outer Space, or did you kind of save that for another time?
5: I, to prove how grown up I am and how even handed I am, Morons from Outer Space is not mentioned in it once. Oh, wow. I know. I know. That must have hurt. No, it was, that was very, I I had very strict rules as to what was featured in the film. And the whole point of the film is it's about, the whole point of the series, sorry, is it's kind of about how. How British society affected British film and how British film affected British society. So really the rules for a film being featured are that either they're reflecting something important that was going on at the time or, you know, they, or they have the film itself change cinema or change society. And sadly, morons did, did not fall into either of those camps. But we've pretty much included about, I mean, Jesus, there's about five, six hundred films that we mention in the four hours. It's a real breakneck tour through everything. There's a lot of weirder and crazier films than morons in there, so I'll leave you with. I don't know if you've heard of the film Venom, the one with Tom Hardy. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no Jesus, no. <laughs> <my.
0: laughs>
5: <laughs> no, this is one with uh, Sterling Hayden, Oliver Reed, and Klaus Kinski. And wow, it's a house in London which is under siege. So, st- so uh, Klaus Kinski is the bad guy. He takes siege, lays siege to his house, and tries to kidnap the son. But they all get caught in the house because there's police outside, played by Nicole Williamson, by the way. And if that's not bad enough, if he, not bad enough, you've got Klaus Kinsey and Oliver Reed holding your house up. For some reason, a black mamba snake gets loose in the house. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's the film, and it is one of the greats. It's one of the great missing British films. It's amazing. The DVD of it is worth watching purely the commentary is amazing because Klaus Kinski and Oliver Reed hated each other through the production of the film. Literally Oliver Reed would tip Klaus Kinski's trailer over with him in it. Like on like a daily basis. <laughs> so like it's the maddest, craziest film. And uh yeah, that's that's that's
2: one of the many obscurities that we, we sideline into. So yeah, it's fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, please check out some of the other shows that I work on, such as The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, or Rankin on Bass. They are all available where finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
0: On our face, there goes that crazy bunch, they're really out to lunch. That bunch of jokes from outer space. we more welcome to our place. Away. no one could have guessed what was inside. Hey, look, they're drinking tea. Hey, look, it's on TV. Turn on and see two worlds collide. live. With more us, welcome to our pleasure dome. Welcome to our mobile home. I'm in the sky. I will. Uh! What have we got to lose? I think I'll buy some shoes. Maybe a home computer too. Travel incognito on the underground. Form ourselves into a tidy.